do it. I do it. We didn't need people to teach us how to do it, do we? You might call it something else, but it's the idea of being cool by association. We're masters at it. We do it all the time. It's where we claim a connection with something that is genuinely amazing, and as if in doing that, some of that amazing rubs off on us, makes us look good. Cool by association. Some people wear T-shirts with their favourite whatever it is on it to associate themselves with whatever they think is cool. Social media is full of placing yourself near objects and things and people who are amazing. The classic thing was to try to become friends with someone in a cool group at school. So elusive, wasn't it? Well, some people try to claim a connection with someone famous who went to the same school as them or crossed paths as you somehow. And it's gross, but we do the name-dropping thing, don't we, when we spend some time with someone influential, whether it's at work or in your social circles, and you just feel the need to let someone know that you've met someone important. Oh, sorry, I can't meet you on Wednesday night. I'm having coffee with Steve Chong. You know, he grew up in Hills Baptist and all. Oh, no, have you returned my signed copy of Tim Keller's new book? Uh, if you didn't know who those people were, I'm sorry. I'm just making fun of Christian groupies. <laughs> I know I got a whole lot more credit when I married Joyce. It works. Cool by association. You, you find someone cool and you attach yourself to them somehow and voila, you become passably cool. Just like that. Do you know anyone who's kind of high profile? You know, whose word can get you into places that you'd otherwise have no chance? I think out of everyone on the planet, the 12 disciples of Jesus, they knew they were onto someone incredible when Jesus tapped them on the shoulder and asked them to start following him. Can you imagine if Instagram or Twitter or Facebook was a thing back then? Every single tweet or photo would be like, I was here with Jesus, hashtag miracle ZOMG. It would be non-stop. Because these 12 men were on the inside track with Jesus, God's promised king, the miracle worker, this amazing spiritual leader and teacher with authority over, apparently, we've seen in eight chapters already, sickness and demons, even death. They've seen the demonstration of that power firsthand. They've even got a taste of that power for themselves. When you see at the start of chapter 9, Jesus sends out these 12 men, giving them authority to do the same things he was doing. So they're out there healing disease. And even demons recognise them and obey. It's good to know the king. And that's who they've identified Jesus as being, you see that at the start of the section that we're reading uh, today, starting from verse 18, Luke chapter 9, verse 18, where Jesus asked them what people will think of him. Come look at verse 18, chapter 9 of Luke, if you have it with you there. It says this, Once when Jesus was praying in private with his disciples, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. Now Elijah was, uh, if if you know your Old Testament, he was one of the big prophets from the Old Testament times in Israel history. 
He had this real big signs and wonders sort of thing going on with him. He was the one who called down fire from the sky to burn up the altar on the showdown with there was, uh, the temple of Baal and their priests and there was Elijah. And it was a showdown to see whose God was real. And he was the one who called down fire from heaven. He was the one who prayed and stopped rain for seven years and then prayed again and, and brought it back. He even raised a child back from the dead to give back to the mother. So you can't blame the crowd for maybe thinking that this is Elijah come again because here's Jesus doing all sorts of miraculous things, signs and wonders that they'd only ever read about maybe in the prophet Elijah. Others say that he's, what do we say there, maybe John the Baptist or maybe some other prophet. But Jesus honed in specifically on the disciples. He asked them, what about you? So it doesn't matter what the crowds think, but you who've seen me up close and personal, you've seen everything I've done, you've heard everything that I've said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman of the group, you read it there, he speaks up for the others and says, you are the Christ of God. That's a very particular title. The Christ uh, was the Greek version of the Hebrew title Messiah, which we also don't use anymore. And the Messiah, all through the Old Testament, was a term for God's ultimate chosen king that was promised. He'd come again and bring peace and restoration and salvation and judgment, all that good stuff. This king that was coming and coming and coming, but 2,000 years of Old Testament history and he hadn't come yet. Let me read you the classic psalm, Psalm 2 about God's chosen king that was coming. The psalmist writes this, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth shake, take their stand together, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let's break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, he rebukes them in his anger, and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in his way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. And it's not just Psalm 2 that talks about him. There's heaps all through the Psalms and the prophets about the Messiah, God's king that was coming. And there's this mountain of expectation by the time Jesus steps into that title. And in Jesus comes, preaching about how God and his kingdom has come. God's kingdom is near, that in Jesus' arrival, it's right here. What he does, how he heals and fixes and restores in power, they're all signs pointing to the fact that Jesus is the authoritative king of God's kingdom. This is the one Israel's kings and prophets spoke about and look forward to. The disciples, they put two and two together and here's someone who walks the talk. Who am I, Jesus asked? The Christ of God, the King. They're quick to give him the right answer. You're the King. It's good to be the King. It's good to be friends of the King, eh? Eh? It's the way of the backstage passes and the VIP treatment. 
Jesus has already demonstrated how good it is to be connected to him. He is the way to life and wholeness. And if you're only doing selective reading and you choose to stop reading now, you might assume it will be all smooth sailing then for the disciples. They've identified Jesus rightly. They've figured out he's God's chosen king. They're on his side. You can break out the champagne and have a party, right? And yet you know all 12 disciples end their life as martyrs. They get killed for the sake of following this Jesus. Can you imagine how shocked those 12 guys would have been to hear what Jesus says next for the first time? I mean, they get it right. They identify him correctly, but then Jesus says, verse 21, he strictly warns them not to tell this to anybody. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's a bit of a mood killer, isn't it? Instead of throwing a party, Jesus says, keep things quiet. Because the rescue mission he's on as God's king, while it ends in glory, it ends in resurrection, the road that paves the way there is full of suffering and is full of death and rejection. This was the curveball that the disciples couldn't have expected. Jesus, God's Messiah, comes to save, yes. But the only way to do it is to come as a sin-bearing sacrifice. And they've thrown their lot in with this king who now says, oh, by the way, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And unlike us, who, who's, we've seen how the story plays out. we celebrated that at Easter. For these 12 disciples, remember, it's still pretty early days. They haven't pieced it all together. For all they know, Jesus has just said something that makes absolutely no sense. Because Jesus was at his prime. He is between the age of 30 and 33. He's got wisdom and authority and power. Everywhere this man goes, the crowds are gathering. From a human point of view, this king is a political superstar in the making who could very well transform the world. And they're backing him for president. That's because they don't really know yet. They don't quite understand the nature of his work or the problem that he's come to fix. The big ticket items in his campaign, they aren't health care, it isn't national security, it isn't economic growth. His concern is reconciling humanity that's gone astray from the God who's made them. And to shift the burden that's in the way of proper relationship with God. Sin that we've done that's marred all of us, the Christ of God has come to deal with that in his death and resurrection. So, what do you think it means to be associated with this king? He uses his absolute authority to sacrifice himself to win people back to God. If you're following someone like that, he tells you, verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. The expectation is that you will lose your life for him. And the call is to come and to deny yourself and everything that you would have otherwise done with your life 
to take up your cross and to follow. It's a, it's a whole of life thing. You, know, you don't just throw a couple of chips in the pile. You go all in. That's what it means to be associated with Jesus. Because the nature of his work, the nature of his kingship demands it. He says, why hold back? Verse 25. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose, forfeit his very self? That's the business he's in. He's redeeming people's very selves. Do you understand this? We, we had it played out for us, I guess, as we participated in the communion. We had it demonstrated for us last week. We, we had a couple of baptisms here last week on Easter Sunday. Justin and, and Miles, they were baptised. They understood. Being connected to Jesus into his death, rising with him to new life. So they entered that water, that, that whole body thing with every part of them soaked. You know, that, that symbol of association with Jesus, dying to themselves, taking up the cross with a commitment to walk with Jesus every single day of their life. And if you're proudly connected to Jesus, on that last day, he's going to be cool with you. Otherwise, shame, we read, verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father. But for now, not talking about the end time, we're talking about now, we're living behind enemy lines, aren't we? In a world that is at war with God and with God's King. And so being connected with that King is going to be costly. Remember, what did they do to this king? Rejection, suffering, they killed him. And you get the idea of being cooled by association, it works the other way as well. If you're connected to someone who's considered a threat, if you're connected to someone who's the enemy, then get ready. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. You know that same day last week that Justin and Miles were baptised? Easter Sunday in Pakistan, you probably saw the news. A suicide bomber targeted Christians who were celebrating Easter in a park, blew himself up and killed dozens and dozens of people. Now I know the Taliban are a fairly extreme example. But persecution's real even if it's not ramped up to that degree at the moment in Sydney. Which you've got to be thankful for. That's, that's a grace from God more than it is a right that we have to claim. We happen to be living in a time and place where we've gotten used to peace. Let's not get complacent, eh? We, like Christians all around the world, are those who are called to obey Jesus in denying ourselves to taking up our cross and following him. You know, one of the things I love about the vision document that we've put together about where we think our church is heading is that well, you said as one of the things, one of the key parts of input that you gave to us as we were putting that together, you said you didn't want to become complacent. And I know it's easy living in the sunny northwest suburbs of Sydney. It's very easy to be content with just being comfortable. But it's not real healthy, is it? And you've said as much, which is very exciting. Now, if you haven't seen our vision document, you should grab a copy of it on the way out. you see it in the foyer. Because things are happening in the next five years. And it's going to come with significant personal cost. 
which is good for us because it pushes us in our discipleship. You can't hear what Jesus is saying in Luke 9 that we've read this morning and say you're taking Jesus seriously if you're not willing to let it cost you anything. In fact, if you're reading it right, I think he says it will cost you everything. The opportunity cost of following Jesus is everything you would have otherwise done with your life if you weren't following Jesus. Over the next five years, you might be challenged to move house and take your family with you to a new place as you help to plan a new church or to give new life to an old one. You might be challenged to take on leadership roles and responsibility for people here in ways that you haven't done before to serve them and to love them. You might be challenged to, sh- uh, to change the work that you do or to put career on hold altogether to explore training for Christian ministry. You might consider maybe helping us with the work here or abroad. You might be challenged in your generosity as we pick up big projects to help out poor and vulnerable people around their world or to uh, pay for lots of the ministry expansion that we want to do in this place. You might be challenged in your relationships where we're helping you to you know, open up and share what you believe with the people around you and that's hard because some of them don't know you're a Christian yet. All that is on the cards. And it's not unreasonable because that's what following Jesus looks like. What I'm asking you to be is to be open to what God might be challenging you about, whatever your context, in the next few years, and for you to be happy owning your connection with Jesus in obedience, to not be afraid of the cost. Because Jesus says, as strange as it sounds, it's as you give up your life that you really find it. Let me read his challenging words in closing. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me, In my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Amen.